scribes and Pharisees in this direction. Uh, we're going to see the reasons why he is uh, speaking to them and condemning them in this way. And then the application is going to be to not be like the scribes and Pharisees. And so that's kind of the, the overarching um, way we're going to approach this text this morning. Uh, as we do so, my prayer is that it will help us as we grow and mature in our faith together. So let's begin by reading the passage. Please follow along with me in your time of God's Word. And in verse 38, it says, And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign for you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to Except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. And as we said this morning, we're going to look at the, the condemnation here of, of the scribes and Pharisees. And we're going to see four truths um, brought out in between uh, with, with what this interaction between the scribes and the Pharisees and Jesus. So the first thing that we're going to see this morning, um, I don't think you're on. I'm on here. You like to? Yes. Yep, last two. Green one. <laughs> so, uh, good night, good game last night at LU, huh? <laughs> So when now it's hot. <laughs> okay. We good? All right. So the first truth that we see this morning um, is that um, the scribes and Pharisees they're condemned in the fact that Jesus refused to show them a sign. 
Um, we see in verses 38 to 40. So they come up to Jesus and they, see, they, they ask for a sign, for him to do something, a, a miracle, something, some kind of marvelous action, something that's so incredible that it would demonstrate that God had done it. Something that could only be explained by the fact that Jesus was God in the flesh. And we see that during his time on earth, his, his ministry um, with, with people that Jesus did in fact do these. He did great wonders and, and miracles and signs among the people. Um, but here, we see when the scribes and the Pharisees ask him to do one, he refuses to do so. And it's, it's a very curious thing. Um, you know, that, that they would come, they would, they would seek this sign, and yet they would be refused. Jesus says, no, I will not do this. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells them that, that by coming and, and asking for a sign in this way, um, and we know that they weren't being genuine, they were seeking to, um, to test him, they were uh, seeking to um, embarrass him in public and in front of everyone, and um, they came and they asked this, and he calls them an evil and adulterous generation. This, this phrase that means they're morally evil and spiritually adulterous. And, and it's a, this is a very vivid illustration that, that God uses um, many times in the Old Testament to describe the, the relationship between himself and his people. Um, when his people go away and they serve other gods and, and um, they have their hearts consumed by other things, it, it's such a betrayal. It's such a lack of faithfulness and loyalty to the Lord. It, it's such an offense to him that he, he likens it to the act of adultery within a marriage. And so one example of this we see is in Jeremiah. Um, where he says, Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. This is a terrible, um, ugly um, sin. It's, it's just, just egregious betrayal um, within a marriage uh, for this to happen. But then how much more is it for God's people to do it? To him, And so that's kind of the illustration that, that God uses in his word. And so here, Jesus supernaturally knows the hearts of these men. And for their hardness of heart, he does not give them a sign. And as we said, the refusal here to do a sign, to, to show them these things, the words that follow from Jesus are in themselves an act of condemnation against them these scribes and Pharisees. And when we look at it and we begin to, to think through it and, and try to apply it to us, we, how often are we much the same way? How often do we look for a sign? We look for something new and, and unique and special, some kind of miraculous answer to, to prayer or, or for deliverance from a, a situation or, or maybe a circumstance that we find ourselves in. We won't we want something flashy. We want something extravagant. 
And meanwhile, our hearts are wicked and corrupt. We're morally evil. We're spiritually adulterous. And so how, how does that play itself out in our lives? And the way it does is any time, any time that we seek after fulfillment, uh, we seek after satisfaction, um, in any other thing except for Christ. Money, jobs, hobbies, uh, relationships with people, any of these things. When, when, when these things are, are what captivate our heart, we're spiritually adulterous. When they have our time, when they have our attention, our, our, um, our interest, our thoughts, when, when they consume us, when we find our meaning and, and identity and, and ultimate joy in any of these things, in anything other than Christ, we're guilty of this same spiritual adultery. And so we see that for this we must repent, must stop, must turn away from and dethrone any of these, these idols that, that sit on the throne of our hearts. And turn towards Christ. Look to Him. Find our ultimate joy. Find our satisfaction. Find our identity in Him. Turn our minds and our thoughts and our attention to Him. We don't want to receive ourselves this same kind of condemnation that we find here. That that comes upon the scribes and the Pharisees for their wicked and adulterous hearts. Therefore, in, instead of seeking a sign, let us repent of our, again, our moral wickedness and our spiritual adultery. The first thing we see, they're, they're condemned in the fact that Jesus does not here do a sign for them. Secondly, this morning, we see that the, the scribes and the Pharisees are condemned for their lack of, of repentance. Their lack of repentance. We see this in verse 41. And so there, Jesus, he makes this comparison. He, he recalls the, the people of Nineveh in the Old Testament. And he recalls the, the preaching of Jonah, the, the prophet of God. As he went and preached these people of Nineveh. And when we look back to this account in the Old Testament... Uh, This is what we find. It says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. 
Verse 10 then says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And so think about the the comparison that is being made here, um, especially in the minds and the opinions of these scribes and Pharisees. We're here talking about the people of Nineveh, these filthy, unclean, pagan, vile Gentiles. They're outside the, the covenant promises of God. They don't have the, the sacrificial system. They don't have the law, the prophets, this, this special relationship with the Lord that the Jewish people had as his chosen people. And yet, we see at the preaching of a prophet of God that he sent to them, they, they display this humility. And they turn from their sin. In their, their fear of the Lord, they, they're grieved over their sin in, in sackcloth and in ashes, and they pray for forgiveness and in repentance. On the other hand, the scribes and Pharisees here were part of the covenant people of God. They had the law and the prophets and the scriptures. They had the temple and the sacrifices and, and the worship of the one true God as he had instructed them in his law. They had every spiritual advantage and privilege possible. Even here, God did not, to them, did not send them a mere prophet. He sent them the prophet. He sent them God the Son in human flesh who is standing before them, and yet they did not repent. They did not worship him. Instead, they they come and they mockingly ask to see a sign from him. It says up in verse 14 of chapter 12, they sought to destroy him, to kill him. Just look at the comparison and the contrast that's going on here between these two groups of people. And we see um, just how... How incredible this lack of repentance on on the part of the scribes and the Pharisees is. Um, Matthew Henry, in his commentary, he wrote it uh, this way. He said, Jonah was but a man. Christ is the Son of God. Jonah was a stranger in Nineveh. He came among the strangers that were prejudiced against his country. But Christ came to his own when he preached to the Jews. Jonah preached but one short sermon calling for repentance. Christ renewed his cause. He sat and he taught in the people in the synagogues. Jonah preached nothing but wrath and ruin within 40 days. He gave no instructions, directions, or encouragements but to repent. But Christ, besides the warning given us of our danger, has shown wherein we must repent, assured us of our acceptance upon our repentance, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jonah wrought no miracle to confirm his doctrine, showed no goodwill to the Ninevites, but Christ wrought abundance of miracles and all miracles of mercy. And then he finishes with this, yet 
Yet the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah. But the Jews were not wrought upon, or they, they were not affected by Christ's preaching. And so here in our text, we see that those men of Nineveh will be a source of judgment on the scribes and the Pharisees for their hard-heartedness, for their lack of repentance to the teaching and the preaching of Jesus. It's an amazing thing. And and so often, we can be guilty of, of the same thing. Just like these scribes and Pharisees. I mean, though we are, we are Gentiles, but at the same time we live at a very privileged place in history of the world. We live after the events of, of the coming of Christ and the crucifixion and the resurrection. We, we have a completed biblical canon. We have 66 books of, of the Old and, and New Testament. We live in a, a context where there's been Great scholarship that is going into to faithfully translating scriptures into our language. We live in a time where technologically it's easy for all of us to have a copy of the scriptures that we might read and study and memorize and, and feast upon. We've been given great privilege spiritually just as the scribes and the Pharisees. And yet how often, in spite of all of these blessings and privileges from God, are we just like what we see in these verses? We, we fail to utilize these advantages. Um, our Bibles go unread, unstudied. How often do our lives lack the prayer that we're now able to have with God, to God the Father, by the Holy Spirit, through God the Son, as we read earlier, making intercession for us. How often do we refuse to repent of our sin? Again, even after having all of this available to us. Again, we, we see this, we must stop. We must repent. Must turn from our, our lethargy, our, our hard-heartedness. We must Pursue Christ in the kingdom of God. Again, lest we be condemned as these scribes and Pharisees were in this passage. We do not want to be judged by the men of Nineveh for our lack of repentance. Third this morning, uh, we see in verse 42, the scribes and Pharisees are condemned here by Jesus for their lack of, of seeking true wisdom. Again, this is a comparison Jesus makes from the Old Testament. Um, the Queen of the South, as it says here. We go back in 1 Kings chapter 10. We read this. Now when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a, uh, with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, 
the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report I heard. Happy are your men, happy are your servants, who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. And then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices, spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And again, as we pointed out in, in the last uh, point, and in verse 41, this is, this is a pagan Gentile queen, who when she, she heard of the fame and she heard of the wisdom of Solomon, she came to see. She came to, to hear what he had to say. She came to, to ask him questions, seeking his wisdom. We know she traveled a, a great distance to, to ask these questions. And we also see here in response to the answers that she heard from Solomon, she turned and she gave glory to the Lord. And yet, in our text this morning here, the scribes and Pharisees having the very embodiment of wisdom standing before them in Jesus. And they do not seek wisdom from him. Rather, again, they seek to test him. They seek to mock him. They seek to destroy him. And so in verse 42, Jesus says there that this queen of Sheba will stand in judgment of these scribes and Pharisees because she sought wisdom while they did not. Again, the application that we not be this way. So the question is, do we come to Christ for wisdom and salvation? Or do we, like the scribes and Pharisees, we, are, are we guilty of trusting in other things, trusting in our tradition, trusting in our education or our intellect for, for wisdom. Um, when we have situations in our lives that require wisdom, how often do we go straight to Scripture to find it? Or we more likely go to Google or, or to parents or to um, friends or, or, or some other means of finding wisdom. No, nothing inherently wrong with, with going to those places, but, but in no way do they replace or do they take precedence over the Word of God. Um, I remember I was, not long ago, I was really uh, convicted about this. Um, I, I, was, I was made to see this in, in a very, uh, very clear way. I was talking to a friend of mine, and he was actually working on um, 
some biblical truths that he was going to go and teach. And so we were kind of looking over him together. We were talking, talking through him. He was asking me some questions, and, and we were kind of working through it. Um, and as we were looking at it, one of the questions that he was teaching on was the question, why did Jesus come to earth? One of his questions. I was like, I've been to seminary. I'm in ministry. I got this. And so um, I immediately went, kind of went into like theologian mode, right? I started formulating this answer in my head, started rattling these things off. And when I was done, my, my friend, he looked at me and he said, well, I was kind of thinking about it. And well, what do you think? I was, maybe I could start with, um, start teaching this section by, going and seeing, you know, the reasons that Jesus himself directly said he came to earth in the New Testament. I was like, pretty good place to start. Um, because he did do that several times. He, he explicitly said he came to fulfill the law, to do the will of the Father, that the sheep may have abundant life, to, to bear witness to the truth. He specifically said this. And so learning that, that when we're in these times, when we're, we're asking these kind of questions to, to not rely on, on things like education or, or own understanding to, to formulate a kind of an answer, but to first go straight to Scripture. And I just thought as I was looking at this, how much more accurate, how much more sound would my thinking and, and my reasoning and my wisdom be, if I, if I approached all subjects and questions this way. And so I, I want to train myself to think that way. To pursue wisdom from, from the Lord and, and from His Word. And to do it even more than the Queen of, of Sheba, as we saw in the Old Testament. Because something greater than Solomon is here. May we seek Him and His wisdom. Fourth, this morning, we see um, that the scribes and the Pharisees were condemned in these verses for their empty, vacant hearts. And we see this in verses 43 to 45. And so look with me there. Jesus says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Now this is a a parable. It's a, a parable that Jesus told. And so it's this, this fictitious thing that he's, he, he's telling to make a spiritual point. Um, and it, it seems strange in, in many ways to us. So to kind of draw out the meaning here of what Jesus is getting to, um, let's think about an analogy to this. So let's say that I have, I've got a neighbor, right? A neighbor who is, is renting the house that's beside me. And you're just a terrible neighbor. 
They're loud at all hours of the night. They're, they're rude. They're disrespectful. They're not concerned about or considerate of, of any of the, the other people and the neighbors around them. Um, and then they go and they leave and, and they move away. Well, what's going to prevent them from coming back later to that same house? Well, the main way is if the owners of the house rent or sell the house to somebody else. Right? If that happens, then the house is occupied. It's taken. Someone else is living in there. And this terrible neighbor that I had cannot come back to that house. And so Jesus is saying in this parable, and the very same thing is true of the human heart. The, the scribes and the Pharisees had sought to obey the, the letter of the law and their tradition. And in doing so, they had, in a sense, in many ways, cleaned up and swept and set in order their lives, at least by outward appearances. But yet their hearts remained empty. God the Holy Spirit had not taken up residence in them. And so for a while... They were able to, to, to clean up their act. They were able to appear holy and righteous. They were still empty apart from Christ. And so in reality, the evil and wickedness and sin that, had, had, that they had cleaned up would return. And when it did, it would be even worse than it was before. John Gill wrote this. Uh, he said the Pharisees had acted morally. They did not commit uh, outward acts of sin, at least where others could see them. They um, obeyed Old Testament rituals. They fasted. They prayed uh, to be seen in public. They did all of these things. And then he writes this, all of which Satan can very well bear with, so long as the heart is empty of spiritual grace in other words all of those things can be true and yet there be no genuine salvation therefore uh, satan has nothing to worry about with that person if your christian life is built merely upon morality there's no salvation there will be no lasting change as a matter of fact as jesus says here the sinfulness and the vileness the corruption it will return and will be even worse than it was before we started to clean it up. John MacArthur wrote this. Through the fear of imprisonment, disease, social stigma, financial ruin, and many other such motivations, a person can manage to rid himself of certain habits. Sometimes the motive is more positive, and the person determines to change because of love of wife or husband or children. But such self-cleansing, no matter how thorough and extensive and no matter what the motivation is, never permanent. Just leaves an, an empty, unoccupied heart. Where envy and, and lust and greed and, and all other forms of sin are, are bound to come and to fill. He continues by saying this. Jesus had little trouble reaching the harlots. He had little trouble reaching the thieves and the robbers and the criminals and the outcasts 
and the centers of society, including the tax collectors, the extortioners. But he had an almost impossible time reaching the religious, self-righteous, moral people who were under the illusion and self-deception that because of their goodness, everything was okay between them and God. You see, they recognized no sin, so they needed no Savior. That is always the danger of morality. That morality creates an illusion of safety when in fact the person who is moral may be in the greatest danger of all. So often we're in this same danger. In danger of being in, in the same boat here as the scribes and, and Pharisees in, in this way. Um, in our society, historically, we've been filled with a, a, a Christian ethic. So we're, we're taught from a very young age. We're taught about, taught about kindness. And we, we think, as, as we've read here, that surely we're, we're good to go because by all outward evidence, our lives are empty, swept, and put in order. All of that can be true of a person, and yet they not be born again. They've not experienced new life in Christ. They haven't been filled with, with the Spirit of God in their hearts. So therefore, they're lost and dead in their sin. So we see morality here leads to, it either leads to self-deception and thinking that you're good enough, or if you're honest and objective with yourself, it leads to complete despair because you realize that you're not truly moral because you cannot live up to the standard of good set forth in the law of God. So what we see here is instead of being outwardly conformed to the law and to tradition and to regulations, we must be inwardly transformed. So salvation is not through keeping a set of rules, but through repentance of sin and faith and trust in the person of Jesus Christ. Again, salvation is not about what we can do for God, but what God has done for us. It's in taking this realistic, again, objective view of ourselves, seeing that, that though like the scribes and Pharisees, we might be able to for a time to keep up appearances on, on the outside. But eventually, inwardly, our, our hearts become hardened and corrupt and, and filled with all sorts of sin. Many times we're worse off after our attempt to clean ourselves than we were before. And so instead of this empty heart, what we need is a new heart. A heart filled with the presence and the Spirit of God. It only comes through rejecting the sin and, and the self-sufficiency in our lives. It comes through trusting in the perfect life of Jesus and His death and His resurrection for us. to restore us, to, to bring us back into relationship with God. He fills our hearts with His Spirit. 
and we're led and we're taught and we're transformed and we're renewed day by day by Him. And by being filled with this Spirit of God, there's, then, there's no room, there's no vacancy left for the sin and the evil and the demonic forces to come and to occupy. And so this morning we've seen these four truths um, of, of this interaction between these scribes and these Pharisees and Jesus. And we've seen the, the reasons why that this, this condemnation is here. And so we, what we want to do, we want to learn from this. We want to, to grow. So, so may we not seek, we not be seekers of, of extravagant signs. But may we repent of, of moral evil and spiritual adultery. May we not lack repentance, but may our lives be marked by continual repentance of our sin as we seek to honor and worship the Lord day after day. As we seek to to sanctify in our hearts Christ Jesus as Lord, as as Pastor Kerry has taught us from 1 Peter 3. May we faithfully and continually seek wisdom from the Lord and from His Word. And may we make sure that our hearts are filled with the Spirit of God and not merely cleaned up and left empty and vacant. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these these words from Jesus, from the, the, the truths that we find in them. Father, may your, your spirit take your word and, and the preaching of it. Father, may you apply it to our minds and to our hearts. Lord, may you transform us. May you change us. Father, lead us to, to repent and to, to draw near to you. Father, for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.